If you've been with us for a bit, you know that we're going through the Gospel of John right now, but we're gonna take a pause from John. If you remember last week, Dave preached through John 4. This is the story of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, and he tells her that God is looking for worshipers in truth and in spirit. And so I thought it would be great to press pause and talk about that, talk about worship. But to do that, we need to go to Texas, okay? Because, well, Texas is weird. They don't do everything bigger. Texas is just really strange. I'm, I'm sorry if you're visiting from Texas, but you're probably strange too. It's just, just the way it is, okay? Um, and you might not know this about Texas, but during Christmas, they have these giant worship services called Christmas pageants. We don't do that here, but they have them. And there was a church that was uh, prepping. They were practicing their Christmas pageant. And someone took a video of it and posted it online. And it went viral for all the wrong reasons. Let's go ahead and watch together. Who needs a little drummer boy when you have a flying bearded one? I mean, that's how they do it in Texas. Now, like I said, this thing went viral and it started the latest case of what people call the worship wars. This is when Christians begin to war over what belongs in worship. And as it turns out, throughout history, history, Christians haven't really agreed on much about what should or shouldn't be in worship. In fact, we only seem to be able to agree about one thing, that we should worship, okay? Uh, Psalm 150 says exactly this. Praise God. This is a command. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we agree on this. God calls us to praise him. We're called to worship him. But once we get past that, there isn't much that we seem to be able to agree on. One of my favorite examples of this, you probably haven't heard of it, comes from the Russian Orthodox Church. Any big fans of the Russian Orthodox Church out here? Okay, seeing none. Let me tell you a little story. This happened in the 1600s. Now, at the time, the uh, Russians who were worshiping in that church were primarily illiterate peasants. So they learned a lot of the Bible and their theology from uh, paintings and icons. And if you look at one of these icons, I'll show you an example here. Often the saints would hold up their hands like that with two fingers uh, up in the air. And uh, the peasants took this to mean that this was the proper way to sign the cross with two fingers. So there you go. There's just one problem with that you're actually supposed to sign the cross with three fingers, right? One, two, three. This is the right way to do it. Well, this caused a worship war. People began to debate with one another. Fans of the three fingers, they said that the three fingers represent the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they said, if you only use two fingers, you were committing a blasphemy because you were saying there were only two people in the Godhead. And then the people who had two fingers said, oh, no, 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 you've got it wrong because the two fingers represent God's or Jesus's divine and human nature. And they said, if you sign with three fingers, you're saying that Jesus has three natures and you're the blasphemer. So you can imagine what happens. They begin to argue and eventually the church divides and it's still divided to this day. The Russian Orthodox Church, they sign with three fingers and the Serbian Orthodox Church, they sign with two fingers. 
Now, it might give us some solace when we think about modern worship wars to realize that, again, Christians have been doing this for a long time. Almost every time a new element was introduced into worship, there were wars, there were debates, and people split when they brought pews into churches for the first time. There were wars and churches split when they brought organs into churches for the first time. There were wars and people split when they brought hymnals into churches for the first time. There were wars and people split We're still warring over worship today. But I think today's worship wars kind of look a little bit different than they have in the past. And that's because we live in a consumer culture. We have been trained from our youngest age to be critics, to be reviewers of everything that we see. We write Amazon reviews of products. We write restaurant reviews on Yelp. We, if you're in college, write reviews of our professors on ratemyprofessor.com. We love to review Can I be honest? Isn't that sometimes how we come to church? I'm talking about myself here. A while back, I was visiting a different church. I was doing an ordination service there. And the whole time I was there, they do lots of things different than us. They do music different than us. The lights are different. Everything is different. And as I'm sitting there in worship, I began to write this Amazon review in my head of everything that I didn't like about their church. And I'm clicking through each thing as we're worshiping. And I get to the end of the service and I discover something shocking. I had an amazing Amazon review. I hadn't worshipped. I hadn't worshipped. How do you find yourself coming to church? As a reviewer? Do you come here to evaluate? Or do you come here to participate? If you're anything like me, evaluation just comes naturally. Again, we all live in the same kind of culture. It's what we always do. But is that how we come? And I ask that question because my soul needs something. My soul needs to participate in worship. What I don't need every Sunday is to go sit and worship and evaluate every little detail. What my soul desperately needs is to enter into the presence of the living God and encounter him and participate with him in worship. That is what my heart needs week in and week out makes me think of something that the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul is telling people reading his letters that not just on Sunday mornings, but with their whole lives, they're called to participate in worship, with everything that they have to participate in worshiping the living God, But that doesn't mean that they're not supposed to evaluate. In verse three, he tells us what to evaluate. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You see, Paul says, we've been called to participate in worship, and if we're called to evaluate anything, well, it should be ourselves. And so when I got to the end of that service and I realized I hadn't worshiped, I'd just written this really long Amazon review in my head, it made me stop and think, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I want to be the kind of follower of Jesus who is eager to enter into God's presence, who is eager to participate with him. I want to be the kind of Christian who can worship anywhere, just like Paul says. I want to be the kind of Christian who can worship in a simple church with a dirt floor and participate there. I want to be the kind of Christian who can go to a grand cathedral with stained glass and organs and worship there and participate in what God's doing. So as I started self-evaluating and asking, am I an evaluator or am I a participator? 
I, I, I decided I wanted to go backwards. I wanted to look at the very earliest recorded worship in the Bible. And I wanted to see if there was anything I could learn from those ancient worshipers, those ancient worship practices that would help me to participate in worship and stop the evaluating. And so that's what I did. I, I, I went and I started studying the tabernacle. Now, here's a little drawing of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was literally a tent. This was a tent where God lived, and it was in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. But the Israelites came here to worship. And the tabernacle, it was, everything was covered with gold. There was fine linens. There were purple linens. There was embroidery. It was a beautiful, beautiful worship space. And so I kind of tongue-in-cheek decided, what would it be like if I went back into the past and I wrote an Amazon review of the tabernacle, okay? Let's just see. This is, this is my review of the, the tabernacle. Not great. Okay, here we go. First of all, why are we worshiping outside? It rained and there was nowhere to take cover. Also, let's talk about all that gold. It's over the top. They're just trying to show off. Yuck. The dancing was a bit much and honestly felt inauthentic and forced. And my ears are still ringing from all those horns. The worst part was that the priest was uppity. He was wearing all this fancy robes with these jewels. Ew, not coming back. Now, I hate to break it to you. This is not in the Bible. Okay? You don't find any Amazon reviews in the Bible. Um, but the Bible does talk about worship. And what I find so interesting is that when the Israelites came to worship, they didn't come as evaluators. They came as participators. Let's read some passages from the book of Psalms that describe the heart with which Israelites came into worship. This is Psalm 61. I long to dwell in your tent. He's talking about the tabernacle, the tent. He says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. He's saying, I'm longing to come and to participate in what's happening here at the tabernacle. Let's look at another one. At his, God's, sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. He's boldly proclaiming, I will not come and write a review. I will not come and evaluate. I will come and participate and sing songs of joy and music to the Lord. One more passage. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. When this worshiper was away from worship, he wasn't thinking, gosh, I really want to go back to the tabernacle so I can evaluate. He's saying, no, I long to go back because I long to be in your presence. My soul is fainting to be close to you. See, the Israelites came not to be reviewers, not to evaluate, but to participate. And as I thought about this, the fact that that's how they came, I started wondering how, why, what, why do they do this? Why were they able to come into the tabernacle and praise God the way they did and not go into the evaluative mode? And I think the answer can be found in Psalm 100. Again, let's just read. I mean, the Psalms are all about worship. But here we go. Shout. So it's going to describe what worship is like. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are the people of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Now, why? Why are they able to come into the courts of the Lord in the temple? Why are they able to come before God in the tabernacle and worship him? Why were they able to do this? Well, we get the answer here. For, because... The Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Do you want to know why they were able to worship? 
because they understood that when they came to the tabernacle, God's presence wasn't based on their works. God's presence wasn't based on them doing a perfect formula, the perfect worship. God's presence wasn't based on a perfect service, based on perfect human works. God's presence was based on the perfection of his grace. God's presence was there, not because they deserved it, but because he condescended to come and be amongst a sinful people. Sinful people on stage, sinful people out there, he comes to be with us. And that's why they were able to worship, because they understood it wasn't on the basis of their performance, it was on the basis of his mercy. That's why. That's why we can come and participate. He's here, whether or not you want to participate or evaluate. He is here. He is present. So how do we participate though, right? I mean, we could say why we should participate, but how do we actually participate? Now, there's so many different things I could talk about under the category of why. I wanna talk about two this morning. The first is probably the most obvious one, okay? How do we participate? Well, throughout the Bible, we've seen it in all of these Psalms, we participate by singing, by singing. In fact, Paul talks about this in Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you let the word of Jesus dwell in your heart with richness and wealth and life? Well, by teaching and admonishing one another, so sermons in all wisdom, and then catch this, how do you let Jesus dwell in your heart? By singing, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know why we sing? We'll stop and think about it this way. Why do we sing the national anthem? Well, we sing it to make a proclamation of our allegiance, a proclamation of our love for our country, right? That's why we sing the pledge of, sorry, that's why we sing the, the Star Spangled Banner. Why do we sing here? To make a proclamation of our allegiance to Jesus, to make a proclamation of our love, to turn to the person beside us and to announce to them the goodness of his kingdom. See, for anything like me, sometimes I find myself not wanting to sing. Sometimes it's because I'm self-conscious, like I don't have a very good voice, or you know, maybe people are going to hear me. Other times I'm just self-conscious in different ways, and I realize that what Paul is calling us to do is set aside that self-consciousness and to, to get our breath and our body and our voice involved in announcing Jesus, because what does your heart need? It doesn't need to evaluate. It needs to participate in song. That's why you're here. Jesus wants to feed you through music. That's not the only way that the ancient Israelites participated. I want to talk about a second thing, and this one's a bit stranger. You don't hear people talking about this one as much, but I think it's really important. I think that the Israelites participated in worship with their imagination. Do you think about that ever, how your imagination is an important part of your worship? What I mean is that when they were in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was laden with symbolism. And they understood what all of the symbols meant. And they allowed those symbols to, in their imagination, communicate greater truths. You can kind of imagine it like your iPhone. So, you know, or, or your Android, if you're an Android person. Um, yeah, but here's, here's what you see. You see a screen with icons on it. And you know how it works, right? You press the icon and it opens up into something bigger, something greater. The icon symbolizes that greater thing. So think about your map icon, right? It's just a little icon, and what does it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes what you can open up into, into a, a big world full of streets and directions and restaurants and locations, right? That is exactly how our imagination works in worship. With our imagination, we click on the icon. We click on the symbolism of what we're seeing, and it expands into something far larger, far more beautiful than we can imagine. That's exactly what the Israelites did in the tabernacle. They clicked on the icons, on the symbols, around them, and they let it expand open. 
Now, some things are better caught than taught or, or seen <laughs> rather than explained. So I want to show you how that happened in the tabernacle. I'm going to show you a 3D video. It's really fantastic of what the tabernacle looked like. I'm going to show you all of the symbolism in each part of the tabernacle and how the Israelites clicked on the symbol to expand it into something greater in their imaginations. As we listen to it, uh, we're going to listen to music from a group called the Yamah Assembly. It's an Israeli group that tries to recreate what worship sounded like in the tabernacle. So I want you to imaginatively with me enter into the tabernacle, enter into the symbolism. Uh, let's watch together on the screen. So as you can see there, in the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, God would come down onto the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. And that pillar of cloud was a symbol of the fact that he had rescued them from Egypt. He had led them out of Egypt. And from that point forward, haze and smoke would always symbolize the presence of God. They could click into that with their imaginations and expand a picture that God wants to be present with us, that God wants to worship with us. Inside the court of the tabernacle, there was an altar. And on this altar, the, the priest, they would sacrifice animals for sins. And they would put those animals on the altar where they would be burned. And the, the smoke would go up. And the smoke would intermingle with that haze. And again, the smoke was a symbol of forgiveness. It was a symbol that they could click into their imaginations and say, God has forgiven my sin. God has set me free. And you see that pool of water behind it. That pool of water, it, it was where the priest cleansed their hands. But the water itself represented the sea. And underneath it were 12 oxen. And those represented the dry land. And so it was a symbol for all of creation, the waters and the land. And when they saw the water, they would look at it and they would see that this was God's plan to fill the whole earth with his glory. They'd click into the symbol and allow their imagination to expand it and realize God's transcendent plan to fill everything. Inside of the tabernacle, there was a menorah. Now, you might recognize this. The inside of the tabernacle was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden. All of it is symbolizing Eden. But this is my favorite, the menorah. It was designed to look like a tree with almond blossoms and branches. Not just any tree. It symbolized the tree of life. And they could click into that symbol with their imaginations and open it up into God's promise to fill them with light, to fill them with life, to bring them back to himself in Eden. They could expand it out. There was also bread inside of this Eden, and the bread symbolized God's plan to break bread with them, to dwell with them, and eat with them. And they could click into that symbol, that icon, and expand it into a beautiful picture of God's eternal plan to be with them forever. There was an incense altar, and again, the smoke and the haze and the smells represented the joy and the beauty of being in God's presence. And behind it, there was a curtain, and on that curtain were two angels, two cherubim, just like in the Garden of Eden, where there were two cherubim, they guard the Garden of Eden, and they understood when they saw those cherubim that this was where the Garden of Eden is, that God's presence is here. Inside of the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant. This was a wooden box that would have been overlaid with gold, but it was called the footstool of God's throne. When they clicked on it with their imagination, they could imagine the throne of God above it, his feet right there on top of it. And it reminded them that in worship, their king was with them. Their king was ruling over them. Their king was covenanting with them. Their king was giving himself to them. When we step back and we look at the whole picture of the temple, of the tabernacle, we see that every element is symbolic. Every element of it is an icon. And if you just tap into each element, it expands into God's plan to fill the earth with his glory. God's plan to rescue and redeem his people. That's what the tabernacle was designed to be for the ancient Israelites.
What if we did something similar when we were in worship? What if God gave you your imagination for many things, but for the sake of worship? You see, God is invisible. You can't see him. And yet he's given you your imagination so that through your imagination, you can encounter him. What would it look like in worship if you would click on the symbols, on the icons around you, and allow them to expand into a far greater reality? Whether that's in a dirt floor church or in a cathedral with stained glass, wherever it is, what would it look like for you to do that, to get your imagination involved so that you're not evaluating what you're seeing and hearing, but instead you're participating with your imagination I might sound a little bit weird with what I'm about to say, but I'll just tell you how I do it. I mean, I understand. At a church like The Crossing, what we do here isn't gonna be everyone's preference in worship. It might not be the thing that you like the most. It's not always my preference in worship, but I've decided I want to come here not as an evaluator of what I like and don't like, but I wanna come as a participator. And for me, that's meant involving my imagination in everything that's around me. So let me give you some examples. Um, you've probably noticed here, we use haze, uh, and there's haze on stage. It's not smoke. Some people think it's smoke. It's not really smoke. It's just water vapor. But what does that represent for me? Well, you already saw it. When I click into that with my imagination, I'm imagining the cloud of God's presence coming over the tabernacle. I'm imagining that cloud filling up our space. Heaven is coming to earth. I'm imagining him here with us present. I'm remembering the story of Isaiah when he walks inside of the temple and he's struck with this vision. In his imagination, he's struck with his vision and all of a sudden the temple is filled with smoke and haze and it's God right there lifted up. He can't see him because of the smoke and haze, but that's because that's what it represents, God's presence. I'm thinking of Ezekiel when he's in Babylon. He's standing on uh, the Chebar Canal. He's overlooking it and again, God appears to him in a vision and he appears in what? Smoke and haze. When I see haze, I try to click into it with my imagination and see it as a picture of God's presence here with us, here with me. Or another one of my favorite things we do is sometimes we'll project nebulas and stars on the screen behind me. And again, I try to click into those things with my imagination. I remember that God made the cosmos, God made the stars, and God, according to Habakkuk, wants to fill the whole earth with his glory. And so when we see the stars and the nebulas, we're being reminded, if we can click into it with our imagination, we're being reminded that God's ultimate plan is not only to dwell with us, but to restore the whole of creation and to fill all of the cosmos with his presence and his glory and his beauty. Another thing we do, sometimes when we're singing songs of confession and repentance, we'll use red lights. And again, I click into that red light with my imagination and I'm reminded that it's a symbol of Jesus's blood. It's a symbol of his forgiveness of my sins. And as that red light is washing over me, I'm remembering with my imagination that Jesus has washed me with his blood, that he has sanctified me with his blood, that he's cleansed me of my sin with his blood. And I'm able to participate in worship because I'm using my imagination to enter into what's happening around me. You see, at the end of the day, we can come to this church, any church, as consumers, and we're all trained to do it. I mean, it's hard for me to turn this off. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. This is how we've been trained and developed. But God isn't inviting us here to evaluate. He's inviting us here to participate. And he's able to do exactly that because of his grace. Because his presence here isn't based on the perfection of our worship. It's based on the perfection of his mercy. 
He's he's calling us to sing to him, to sing to him with our mouths, to to use instruments, to praise him. That's how we participate. He's calling us to bring our imaginations into the worship service, to imagine him, to see his bigger story. What do you think your heart needs every Sunday? Does it need an Amazon review at the end of church? I'll tell you what my heart needs. My heart needs Jesus. My heart needs to enter into his presence. So I'm just praying that slowly over time, God will take that inner critic out of me and allow me wherever I am, wherever I worship, to praise him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you today in praise. We come before you today to worship you. I confess that I am the chief of evaluators here in the room. It is so easy for me to forget that I I am not in a consumer culture when I come into church. It's so easy for me to forget that what my heart needs isn't a review. What my heart needs is you. Jesus, I pray that you would fill each one of us with a desire to have you, to worship you with our mouths, with our imaginations. I pray that you would help us to worship you with songs, with drums, with guitars, with lights, with haze, with every element of beauty that you've put here so that we could click into it with our imagination and know who you are. Jesus, we confess that sometimes we're distracted, not by what's happening, but what's happening inside of our hearts. And so I pray that you would help us to set aside that self-consciousness and enter into worship because there is no one like you. I'm coming here on Sunday because there's no one here like you. Not out there, there's no one like you and you deserve our worship. You deserve our praise. It's your name that we pray.